You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, everyone. Good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. How are we this morning? I'm good, I'm good. How have you been, Claudia? I've been very well. I had a pretty nice long weekend, so... um, yeah, feeling relaxed. It's a nice short week. Yeah, that's been amazing. Yeah, I've also been um, doing well uh, by being quite busy as well. Uh, the past few days I've been working or juggling uh, university. But um, yeah, I remembered you were quite unwell on the day of International Women's Day. How, oh. Yeah, what did you do last week during that time at night after our Wednesday breakfast show. Yeah, well, yeah, I was a bit under the weather, but um, managed to recover by the weekend and mm. uh, get down to Aries Inlet, which is a lovely part of uh, Great Ocean Road, mm-hmm. and just had a very relaxing weekend. But um, yeah, International Women's Day was very exciting, mm. and yeah, we're still hearing lots of women's stories. In the news and yeah. in the media, which is great because we should be celebrating and recognizing every week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yeah, that's why I was um, thinking as well because I remembered when I uh, when I was doing International Women's Day last week, where I had to come in at night for our GCR dinner, our our international dinner with um, celebrating women, and yeah. We we did a bit of a talk with um some of our three CR panel uh pre- presenters and yeah I was also saying during that time you know it should be a women's day every day because we need to we should celebrate and honor women every day because they do so much we all do so much for society society and then also there's so much things that still need to be mentioned and talked about about mm. bringing awareness about the rights and the, the rights for women and solidarity and equal and equal Equality, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, yeah. one of the things we haven't had much time for the last couple of weeks is music. So mm. we're going to actually start off with a song this morning and then we'll come back and have a bit of a rundown about what we'll be talking about on Wednesday breakfast. Yeah. So um, sounds a bit more of like a very sad song for a start, but I hope for, hopefully this is actually quite... Um, bring uh quite i would say up bt i guess that's the word yeah um this is river of tears by kev carmody there's a cold rain on the autumn wind a brother murdered in sydney town 
Mark, my brother, and I suppose they go covering his home to gunned him down. He said, oh, 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 gunned him down. Sad rivers of tears to hundred years in the river of fear. Gunned him down. They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his marble bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, grieving wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded guns. We say, oh, 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 Gunned him down. Sad rivers of tears, 200 years in the river of fear. Gunned him down. Terrorists dressed in uniform under the protection of their law. Terrorized blacks and dawns of fear that come smashing through your door. You're not safe outside on Freedom Street. You're not safe inside the can. There's shotguns and there's stun guys. The license to drop you where you stand. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. Sad rivers of tears to hundred years in the Gunning down That was River of Tears by Kev Carmody. And now we'll be um, back. Uh, now, now we're back <laughs> with um, going through what we're going to be talking about today and what we're going to be going through. So what have we got first up, Grace? Yeah. So first up uh, for me, I'm, I'm bringing you a special from one of our 3CR shows, Out of the Pan. So uh, this is by Sally Goldner who spoke to the amazing community contributor, Dina Curie, a cabaret comedian, uh, entertainer, and also an MC, who uh, spoke to each other during the Chill Out Festival last week about World Pride um, and Pride in Victoria, and also giving a safe space for the LGBTQ plus community. Fantastic. That was on over the weekend, I think, up at Dalesford. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what would be our next segment about... And then we're going to be hearing from Jathan Sadowski, who's a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. And he's going to be talking about generative AI platforms. So a little bit of a digital technology discussion for this morning. We haven't mm. talked about AI yeah. for a while here. Um, but, yeah, very happening subject. Mm. And then at uh, 10 to 8, we'll be speaking with author, historian, environmentalist, lawyer, Kate Orty. And she's going to be uh, telling us about a book that has just been published that she's written called O'Leary of the Underworld, The Untold Story 
of the Forest River Massacre. Um, so, yeah, content warning there when we come to it, that that will be, um, could be distressing for some viewers. We'll be going into that more later. But, uh, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting talk. And then just after 8 o'clock, we'll have Emily Sexton with us. She's the co-artistic director of Arts House, a contemporary performance space in Nam. And they are currently presenting Frame, which is a month-long festival of dance. So. Mm, interesting. You've got really good topics to come up to. Yeah, we've got a bit of a today. variety this morning. So, um, yeah. yeah, shall we kick off uh, with our first segment? Oh, yeah. So um, going straight into minds. So basically, again, for those who just tuned in, I'm bringing a special from Out of the Pan by Sally Goldner. Sally spoke to the amazing community contributor Dina Curie, a cabaret comedian, entertainer and MC, uh, during the Chill Out Festival that happened last week about World Pride uh, and Victorian Pride in Victoria and also giving a safe space to the LGBTQ plus community. And yeah, now I'll be passing to Sally. Oh gosh, it's wonderful to have my fellow Chill Out Ambassador, Dina Curie. Hello, hello. Oh, who doesn't love community radio? I know I do, no matter what station you're tuned to. And I think it's absolutely wonderful that we've got you here live at Loud and Proud. It's just so good to be here now. I mean, you've, you've been up here and you're um, obviously in your various performing and creative <laughs> guises of various Look, I've sorts. I've certainly had a very busy Chill Out. There's yeah. no denying it. Yeah. Uh, but I, that's one of the ways in which I love to be able to celebrate and be a part of this festival. You know me, Sal, I'm a doer. And uh, I certainly did a lot yesterday, but what made me really happy was being able to talk at a panel with you. Yep. Read Drag Storytime, Rainbow Storytime for children. You know, do a solo show, host a pool party. It's a whole lot of different things. I think that's what I really enjoy the most about Regional Pride. There's so much going on. It really is, you know, it really is a packed barrel. I'm, I'm tired just hearing you talk about <laughs> it. Um, and But, I mean, it is, whether it's Melbourne or regional, the coffee's always good in Victoria. Oh, look, yeah. I mean, and I think <laughs> you are 100% right. And I think I'm just really proud of what we have here in Victoria. It's something really special. You know, celebrating who we are in the way we're able to at the start of the year is such a special thing. I mean, are you, have you got exhaustion yet, Sal, at all I'm from all the prides? I'm beginning to get a bit tired, and I didn't go up to Sydney, <laughs> and you and so many others did. You were, you know, I ch we were chatting at one point just about how some of the, I think the the Sydney drag queens are saying, oh, we're too tired, and it's like, oh, oh yeah, like us love it. <laughs> you know what, because I have just also been at World Pride and Mardi Gras, and it is that funny thing where, you know, some of the Sydney drag queens after two weeks are like, oh, I'm so glad for a rest, and I'm like, who gets a rest? We've got Chill Out, Bendigo Pride's around the corner, Castle Maine is celebrating Pride, our regional Pride is flying strong. Well, that's the thing, and we do, I think we, and on that note, we do definitely need to give a positive shout out to the Victorian Government Absolutely. for their great work, um, the, the regional roadmap, the um, roadshow as it was, um, the great contributions of one of our great community contributors, Daniel Whithouse. Um, Absolutely. And also the work that they put in after last year we had Melbourne Pride and the work they put in listening to the regional communities who felt that, you know, we last year was we had a big celebration of the decriminalisation of yes. homosexuality, the anniversary of that, which happened during COVID, uh, the pandemic lockdowns. But we were, had a great celebration that was meant to be for everyone, but our regional communities weren't really a part of it. And the Victorian government 
really listen to that and listen to what they were saying. And this year really changed it. You know, we started our Pride season in December, you know, with a wonderful gala in Shepparton before out in the open. And it was amazing. And, and you're exactly right. That work doesn't just happen. Like, shout out to the Victorian government. But you're right, Daniel Whithouse, the, the Equality Branch and the individuals in our communities that help elevate and make that so strong. Well, that's the thing. You know, there is so much going on now in regional Victoria. I mean, you know, um, full credit, of course, to the fabulous crew, Damien Co-op in Shep yes. for um, out in the open, oh. um, all the good people at, um, I went to Castle Main Pride last year. John and Zara at Bendigo Pride. Absolutely. It is really, it is just really oh, wonderful. Pride to Initiative. I forgot them. They're absolutely oh, amazing. Yes. Well, that's the thing. Um, if I don't say hello to my dear friend um, S2, Sally Codding. Um, oh, yes. Oh, Sal. Oh, we love Sal. We love the Sals. But, um, <laughs> you know, apart from all these names, there's so many names who are unsung. But it is, of course, the serious thing, the really important thing. People get to be their whole selves where they want to be. And you cannot underestimate how truly amazing that is. It was an interesting thing about the panel we were on yesterday and we had some interesting questions about the past and, you know, what do you want 10 years from now and and looking around and actually seeing people celebrating themselves, younger people, older people, you know, youth like myself at the tender age of 44, but, you know, actually having everyone celebrating who they are and celebrating themselves was something really special. And I was looking around and just thinking, you know what, I didn't actually get the chance to do that when I was young. So there's something truly wonderful about people being able to do that. Well, absolutely so. Um, you know, this is this is the thing. You know, um, you know, I, I sometimes comment that um, you know I um, you know I didn't come out till 29, and then in 1995, and you know I think I'd met three out in by today's language trans and gender diverse people under 25 up till 2006. Now, of course, young people everywhere and young people watching the Chill Out Parade this morning in Trans Flags, a fabulous panel that you mentioned is so with yeah. so many young trans Wonderful. and gender diverse people. Mm. And I think that's a good sign and it's something that you know, we can be proud of. I think if I, if I have a criticism, we don't sell what we do in Victoria to the rest of the world. You know what? I mean, I, was, I, I thought you were, what you were going to say is we sell ourselves short. And I think you're right a, a little bit. Like, I think we are so blessed and lucky for what we have. And we, we hold it tight, like, because we know how strong and precious and important it is. But what we have here in Victoria is absolutely wonderful. And I feel is leading the way. In, around you know the nation and it really can show what you can do and how you can do when we work together and the spaces that we create for ourselves are so wonderful and powerful but I mean another interesting thing I'll take away from the conversation we had is we unfortunately it's not like we can rest on our laurels no. either you know like it, there are constant people trying to delegitimize and I and I said a couple of people hit me I put a mess up message up today yesterday at uh, Rainbow Story Time. We had the biggest one we've ever had at Jalesford. Yep. And at a time like this, when um, you know communities being attacked uh, yep. because of drag queens reading or entertaining children, I think that was really special and important. And I wrote a post and said, we can't forget that you know trans and queer people are being attacked and stigmatised under the guise of this bill and narrative that exists. And someone wrote me a private message and said, look. Why couldn't you just use one word for the whole community? Because I feel like you're separating the trans and the queer. And I, I had a really important reason for doing it. And it's because there is a very different kind of, you know, uh, 
stigma and and assault that happens online and in spaces to trans people that is different trans and diverse people that is different to the one that queer people have they're still both terrible and I don't feel like we should mash it all together because we need to remember that you know it's not the same for everyone in our communities and everyone needs a space to shine the way that works for them oh look absolutely so you know brilliant brilliantly said Dean and um you know, I mean, there is, you know, this difficult issue, I and mean, it's got to be discussed. And I want to give a good shout-out to Polly Filler, who, yep. yeah, the, I was just uh, mentioned before, the opening night, yes, it was all very sort of, you know, upbeat and celebratory, but Polly Filler did stop to talk about what's happening in Tennessee yep. and those sorts of things. And we can't forget that. We need to keep holding space for everyone, remembering that it's not all equal. You know, the old story, yeah, if Australia got marriage equality in 2017, it's not the end of the rainbow. It's no. So, you know, it's only no. sort of maybe... I find it really up. weird when people say... I mean, I, it's been five years and people still bring up marriage equality. And the thing that I think is interesting is I keep reminding people, you know, because of the way in which that silly plebiscite was put forward, our trans and gender diverse communities were absolutely thrown under the bus. So I, 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 I kind of like to make sure every time, not that you were over, I know you know this very well, Sal, but every time people mention it, I like to go, let's, let's, let's just remember what happened then. The only way that something like that could happen was for more stigma and victimization and, and abuse to happen to our trans and gender diverse communities. And then some people were exhausted by the fight they did and have taken a well-deserved breather, but we need to go, you know what? They're our community as well, and they've stood by us and we need to stand with them because the fights that they have constantly been going through all their lives are happening so much more now, because as you said, it's wonderful to see so many young gender diverse and and trans individuals stepping up and and being able to feel comfortable and happy to celebrate who they are, but we need to have their backs. I'll just take a breath. Sorry. No, no, seriously, I'm I'm genuinely moved. Thank you for that allyship, um, because we need that. We need to remember that, you know, some a lot of issues got sort of put in a behind a bottleneck, so to speak, to get marriage equality and sort of like, oh, well, the bottleneck shouldn't be there anymore, but why haven't we progressed further? Yeah. So I really personally will say as an advocate, blah, 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 so much appreciate what you've just said. Um, and... Um, you know, I'll say that again because yes, we're having a little bit of feedback from the chill out stage. Yep, um, but um, I'll say that again. I really appreciate that allyship, and I really urge people across the rainbow kaleidoscope to be allies to each other and keep learning, which came up in a few of the various panels we've been on. It's all we can do: keep understanding each other and stand by each other, and remember that um, you know we need to keep going, yeah. which is really, really important. Um, I'm going to do a lighter question. I totally want to hold space for what you've just said. How do you keep going with all of this stuff? I mean, what a problem to have, but I do want to ask, what's your secret trick? Well, it's certainly not health because my waist keeps getting bigger and bigger, (laughs) but community feeds me. I I think it's that, you know, I, I know a lot. I mean, this weekend alone, 12 different events. It's, it's a lot in four days, just coming on the back of World Pride and Mardi Gras and Midsummer. And I just haven't stopped going. We had Gippsland Pride. Like it's been a, amazing start to the year but how I keep going is because 
I see what it does and I know what it means. And I'm not doing it alone. You know, I think a lot of people see me running around all the time and just see me. But, you know, there's a whole community with me. You're there as well. You know, Freddie Merkin and I have been running all around Victoria this year. Yeah. And the only, you know, am I tired at the end of the day or at the end of gig? Absolutely. But knowing that it creates space and creates an environment for community that does so much. And it just brings, even last night, I did an extra hour on top of my, <laughs> my solo show at the Grand. And I just, because I went, look, if you want to go, you can go, but I'm enjoying myself. And, you you know, we're here till nine anyway. So I just kept going and they loved it. But because it, it feeds me, you know, it, it feeds me and my performing feeds me, my community feeds me. And that's how I keep on going because I see what it does and I see the joy it brings. Oh, brilliantly put. Um, you know, it, it is. And I mean, it must have been, it is nourishing. Um, it can be exhausting. I mean, it's over it. We were over it better together. We forgot that one. Yes. Oh, yeah, was... better together. The conference in Adelaide. Adelaide. Oh. And I mean, you know, conferences, you know, worst problems to have again, they're, they're draining you constantly thinking, having your ideas challenged. It's not like you're on autopilot or anything. Um, but, you know, you come away with that sense of connection and community that, you know, you know, obviously we missed particularly in 2020 and 21, uh, or mostly thereof. Um, you know, some events snuck in early in 2020. Um, but um, to get that back again, I didn't realise how much I'd missed it, actually. Yeah. And it's absolutely wonderful that we have it. So... Um, it really does make all the difference. I want to say something Yeah. to you. Um, I want to just do a massive shout-out for you specifically, Sal. Aww. The way you hold space for other people, the way you keep our, our individuals and community in check, the way you do it with a smile on your face, amazing humour, and an amazing passion. Like, you've always been quite an inspiration to me, and I'm going to use this opportunity, Ambassador of Chill Out to Ambassador of Chill Out, to just take a moment to celebrate you and what you do. This radio show alone, that's been going for how long? Like 18 years in one week. <laughs> and, the, and it's amazing what you do and how you do it, and the space you give for us to understand. I'm going to let that feedback just go through for a moment. But to understand and to learn, and you keep doing it by just being you. And it's an amazingly powerful thing. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dean. Um... Sorry, I didn't mean to, but I think it no. needs to be said. It's no. You're very powerful, and um, thank you. You know, as uh, wrestler, as Chris Jericho used to say when he was in WWE, drink it in pan. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it is nice to get a compliment. And one of my great idols, Wendy Rule, used to say when someone does say something nice, stop and breathe it in. We live in a Take world that's in, sometimes please. polluted. And we do need to do that to each other, compliment each other on what's going well. And, you know, we still have to have challenging conversations. Again, Absolutely. holding space, I think, is my theme for, this, for the weekend. Yeah. And it is really, really important. Yep. Um, Dean, you've got to head off to another thing. It's been just so wonderful that you've come impromptu over to the 3CR tent. You're just an absolute community contributor, and I can give you back a compliment. At the bi trans and bi panels I was on down on the soundstage, um, sorry, not the soundstage, at the Savoy on Friday night, people said, you know, Dean Curie's such an Ellen's. I think someone said something like, yeah, he's just an, an, an ally to everyone. And oh, it's are. my pleasure, and thank you for being here at Chill Out and doing this live show. It's wonderful. Dean, better let you get off to the next shindig. Thank you so much on every count and um, happy performing chookers, as they say, and we'll catch you. That was community contributor Dean Akuri speaking with Sally Gottner of Out of the Pan during Chill Out Festival last week. If you would like to listen to the entire show, head to 3CR's Out of the Pan page, or if you would like to listen to Sally Gottner live, 
Tune in every Sunday from 12pm to 1pm. Now we'll be taking a short break. I'm bringing you a song called Destiny by Debbie Morrow.
And that was Debbie Morrow with Destiny. We're going to be talking AI in a moment, but before then I just wanted to extend an invitation to our listeners from SANA at the Nuclear Free Collective. The group is holding an in-person action meeting at Friends of the Earth this evening, 15th of March, and she's inviting anyone who is interested in what's going on in the nuclear space, which is a lot at the moment, um, to come along between 6 and 8pm at Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. So the meeting's going to focus on painting a banner for the group's solidarity trip to Adelaide next week, where they will attend the annual general meeting of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance They'll also be visiting the proposed National Nuclear Waste Dump Site and be chatting to locals to get their take on what is going on in the area. So Sana welcomes our listeners and says this is a great way to contribute and show some active solidarity. For more information, you can head to www.melbournefoe.org. Au, and yeah, you'll find out more there. And they actually have these meetings every third Wednesday of the month. So tonight's meeting, Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, from 6 to 8 p.m. And while we're on the subject of nuclear power, I'd like to pay tribute to a great Japanese author, Kenzaburo Oe, whose death at the age of 88 was announced yesterday in Japan. Oe was one of Japan's most acclaimed writers and the winner of the 1994 Nobel Prize for Literature. He was also a self-described anarchist, democrat and political activist who decried nuclear weapons and devoted much of his writing to the subject of war and the devastation of Hiroshima. Oe campaigned for peace and anti-nuclear causes, particularly after the 2011 meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear plant. And in 2013, he organised an anti-nuclear rally in Tokyo and in 2015 joined thousands to protest moves by the then Prime Minister Abe to let Japanese troops fight abroad. 
Oer outwardly criticised Japan's decision to restart nuclear reactors in the wake of the Fukushima disaster and is reported as saying Japan has a sacred duty to renounce nuclear power in the same way it renounced war under its constitution. So media around the world are paying tributes to the writer and, yeah, I thought it was uh, mm-hmm. timely to pause on, on that this morning, um, yeah, particularly as we have these AUKUS Thing purchase happening. of the submarines and, yeah, much debate in mm. the nuclear and anti-nuclear space at the moment, yeah. Yeah. He'll be really greatly missed, especially because he's been such a great author to so many of us book lovers out there. Mm, Mm. Yeah, he's written some wonderful books in addition to writing about war and um, political matters. He also wrote a very tender, beautiful novel called A Personal Matter, which is about, Mm, it was a a fictionalised account of a a father uh, who uh, has a disabled child and... um, yeah, he himself uh, has a, a child that had uh, a brain uh, damage. So, yeah, mm. it was a very personal story for him. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to move on now to mm-hmm. the subject of artificial intelligence. What can you mm. tell us, Grace? Yeah. So now we'll be hearing from Jaren Sadowski, who is a senior research fellow uh, in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. Last week, he joined Priya on Thursday breakfast to discuss generative AI platforms such as DAL-E and you probably heard ChatGBT and how their development could impact the modern tech industry. This is Jaden Sadowski with Priya from Thursday breakfast. And now we're going to be joined by Jathan Zadowski, who's a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who's going to be speaking with us about generative AI platforms, including the much-hyped DAL-E and ChatGPT, to unpack what they do, how they work, and to contextualize their development within the political economy of the modern tech industry. Jathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. Yeah, I am really appreciated your analysis of this thus far, so I'm excited to have a chat about it on air. Maybe we can start off with a bit of a primer on generative AI. So I know our listeners will probably have heard of systems like DALI and ChatGPT, both of which have been developed by the company OpenAI. But what are we talking about in general when we use the term generative AI? Can you tell us how these systems are trained and how they work? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as I go about and do that, I think it's really important to realize that this term generative AI is pretty new. Uh, and Dolly and ChatGPT just kind of seemingly came out of nowhere last November or so. So we're, it, it's interesting that we're all already um, talking about this and trying to understand a like huge tech hype, huge trend that is just a few months old. <laughs> and so with all that said, I think it really speaks to the power of these systems that creating a lot of uh, that hype and a lot of attention. Um, but can, to, to bring it back a little bit, what Dolly and ChatGPT is, is, they're essentially you know, AI systems, generative AI is taking in a bunch of information, a bunch of data. So Dolly does images, ChatGPT does text, and these systems just consume uh, a, a huge amount, essentially an internet's worth uh, amount of data about images, paintings, art, or in terms of chat GPT, anything, any text that's ever been posted on the internet. And it consumes all of that 
and then it uses it to create output based on prompts that people give it. So, you know, you can tell Dolly to give you a, a, a painting in the style of Rembrandt, of a robot, uh, and, and it will do something like that. Or you can tell ChatGPT to uh, write you a song about Australia in the style of uh, the Beatles, and it will do that, right? Um, and, and so that's one thing that makes these, these systems so interesting is the ability to directly interact with them and directly have outputs, which is not what we're used to when it comes to AI systems. And so that's, that's really the generative point, is they are technologies, they're, they're systems that consume a lot of data and then generate outputs based on somebody asking them to do a specific thing. Yeah, and I think um, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug the excellent uh, Ted Chang essay on ChatGPT here as well because I think there's a, a really useful analogy there in terms of comparing this to kind of lossy compression uh, in in audio terms, where this generative AI, these tools are not necessarily producing something that is like a, a novel creative output, but more kind of cramming together or summarizing a whole lot of information in a way that has, you know, interesting implications for the way that we engage with these kinds of tools and um, their potential to actually um, make change and create new things. Um, but yeah, you did mention that engagement with these generative AI tools um, seems to be encouraged with a whole lot of hype, um, and they are quite new. Um, but this has also been uh, accompanied by a growing public discourse, which I would say is probably part of the same hype machine around the potential for these tools to affect labor conditions across a range of industries by, quote, replacing workers. So could you speak to the role of marketing in this and kind of the accuracy of the hype and how it aligns with the capital flows then that are associated with these tools? Absolutely. Like, we can't understand these technologies without understanding them in the context of venture capital invest investment and capital flows. And the fact that right now there's a lot of what in the VC world is called dry powder, so capital that's waiting to be moved into something. Uh, and and there's, there's a reason why generative AI has come out of nowhere as well and been accompanied by a lot of hype about all of the things it's going to do, all of the disruptions it's going to cause, all of the wonders it's going to bring to our lives. Uh, the, you know, it, it happened to come um, right at the tail end of the crypto crash and the like evaporation of Web3, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that cryptocurrencies, blockchains, Web3, you know, the next phase of the internet or whatever that we heard about so much over the last two years, Suddenly, that all crashed, it collapsed, it evaporated, and there were a lot of people or a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of technology companies with a whole lot of money ready to invest it into the metaverse or in the cryptocurrency, and now that opportunity is not there. And so generative AI has kind of taken the place as the next new hype machine um, that's attracting all of this uh, investment. And there's a good reason for it as well, because, I mean, it's if any of your listeners have played around with Dolly or ChatGPT, it is quite wondrous. And uh, it, it's very interesting because it's unlike anything we're ever used to interacting with in terms of something that seems to be intelligent, something that mm. seems to give you original, novel, intelligent responses to 
a direct query or question, or you can have conversations with ChatGPT. But importantly, somebody very early on described ChatGPT not as um, having a genius in your pocket, but more like having 10 dumb guys in your pocket, right? Like, because there's nothing original that mm-hmm. ChatGPT is actually doing. There's nothing novel or smart uh, in, the, in the sense of, you know, intelligent um, that it's doing. What it's doing is what can be described as mimicking mm-hmm. or in a more technical term, what we might call probabilistic pastiche. Uh, in other words, it's mimicking or it's, it's, uh, uh, it's mimicking the style of other things and it's doing so in a probabilistic way. It doesn't actually know what it's doing. It doesn't have a theory of mind. It doesn't have cognizance. It doesn't have conscience. What it does is it's an extremely advanced version of autocorrect, mm-hmm. where every single word that it produces or every pixel of an image it produces is just a probabilistic, this seems to be what comes next in this uh, series of creating an output. So it doesn't understand the whole thing it's creating. It doesn't even understand what it's creating. And it's not creating anything new in the sense of it's totally original. It's a kind of probabilistic mashup of stuff that already exists in the world. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great description of it as well, because it kind of also looks at these correlations and brings things together, uh, which then allows, you know, for really weird products, for example, out of Dolly, which are novel and are really interesting to engage with. But um, I know that a lot of your work also focuses really on, you know, what happens in the back end of these things and what are the material relations that make these things possible. And I know that you've drawn attention to the fact that the most concerning labor issues, not not thinking about things like, you know, how will this replace copywriters or creative uh, people in the creative industries, but rather looking at the realm of data labor for these AI systems. So could you explain what you mean by this? For sure. These AI systems don't come out of nowhere either. They require an immense amount of labor, not just in creating the technology, you know, coding the system, but more so and importantly, uh, creating and cleaning the data required to train these systems. And there's there's a a massive global industry, a a tens of billions of dollar uh, global industry that is focused on exactly providing the labor pool to create and clean data that can then be fed into training AI systems exactly like uh, ChatGPT or DALI or now any number of these other models and AI systems that are being created. And this labor is often very invisible. You know, consumers don't even really know about it, and the companies that use it don't acknowledge it because if you pull the curtain back behind the Wizard of Oz and see that it's actually just a bunch of workers. And in the case of ChatGPT, they were contracting with a company uh, in Kenya that was paying workers $2 an hour to this kind of uh, data training. And importantly, this is not just sitting around and doing like data entry work. But in the case of ChatGPT, they were training a system to create the, the guardrails to prevent, in other words, the AI from skewing uh, violent, racist, homophobic, sexist, uh, any other kind of awful kind of output because it's trained on the Internet, which mm-hmm. means it's trained on an entire large corpus of racist, violent, sexist, etc. 
uh, data. And so you've got people who are, you know, doing the really hard manual work of filtering out that data and training the AI how to not use that kind of data in its output, but use other kinds of data. Um, and so this is a really necessary labor industry for the creation of these technologies that seem magical, but largely because all of the underpaid uh, labor that goes into them is, is invisible. Yeah, I mean, I think that really, um, really echoes maybe not the the like a bunch of dumb guys uh, comment, but really just it is just like there's a bunch of guys actually at, at the back end that are making it possible for you to engage with this in a particular way that is not violent and harmful. I think potentially, I don't know, I could be wrong here, but a useful kind of analog to that kind of labor model is thinking about content moderation. Um, I'm thinking about this like on social media where it's like, yeah, automation might be a feature of that content moderation, but a lot of it is just people having to uh, engage with really horrible parts of the internet, horrible things that people try and upload, um, and make sure that those don't hit people's feeds. Yeah, no, there's an exact, it's the same industry. Um, So you're right to draw that analogy, because it is the same exact industry, and it's the same exact kind of job. And there's a lot of research and data showing that, or evidence showing that people working in content moderation as well as working and training these AI systems, are quite traumatized mm. by the work they do because they are having to engage with the, the darkest parts of the Internet to, you know, protect consumers from not ever experiencing that. So, you know, truly awful things like seeing beheading, child pornography, you know, these kinds of things mm. um, on, that are posted on social media or that just exist on the Internet, um, and then filtering that out, cleaning it from uh, the the data that then goes into the consumer-facing application. Yeah. I thought that we could maybe briefly pivot um, from this discussion about how, you know, how the sausage is made to the potential impact of these large language models like ChatGPT in the academic arena, because I think they raised some interesting questions about some of the already like fairly fraught notions of academic integrity and then the grinding demands of like a publish or perish model of research labor. So um, I know this is a, a big can of worms to open up, but I know that we're both also situated within academia. So I was wondering if you could maybe comment on whether or how you think large language model AI systems might influence approaches to research and teaching, um, considering what we're seeing at like early stages? Yeah, and I think that's important is that it is still very much early stages. It's a good question, and there's absolutely analogies we should be drawing here as well, you know, whether it's similar conversations people were having when calculators uh, became a thing, right? Now no one's going to know mathematics because everyone has a calculator, um, or similarly, when when I was in college, it was all about Wikipedia, mm-hmm. right? Like, students aren't going to write their own essays because they have Wikipedia to uh, copy from. Like, all that to say is that these are serious issues that require real serious consideration, but they're also not totally new in form either. There is real good concern that, you know, both students and academics alike going to you know, just go on to ChatGPT and say, write me a 1,200-word essay uh, about the history of Australia, and then you turn that into your class, right? <laughs> like, uh, and that, that's a possibility. Um, and, however, I think for me, 
you know, some universities are going to the extent of making formal rules in terms of banning the use of generative AI um, in assignments unless it's otherwise part of the assignment. For me, I think it's, it's early days, and I think there's going to be a lot of kind of missteps in terms of figuring out how and to what extent we can use these technologies. And I think a lot of the, the worry does actually come down to, as well, the fact that people don't really have a clear sense of the limitations mm-hmm. of these technologies um, and, and their ability to do actually original, interesting, novel um, work visually or textually. You know, I think once we get more uh, interaction with these things that, again, are really, really quite new. And I saw a stat that OpenAI, you know, has already reached 100 million active users. It's become the, the fastest growing consumer application in the history of the world. Wow. Uh, but what that tells me is that there's a lot of people experimenting with it, a lot of people interacting with it, but it's also still really new. And I think people will very quickly start discovering the real limitations of these things. And also, I think we will honestly just get used to uh, eating AI-generated text Mm -hmm. in a way that right now it seems human-like because we've never encountered anything like it. But give it a couple years of, like, this stuff being much more common in our everyday life in terms of reading news articles that have been generated by AI or reading student essays that have been generated by AI. And I think we'll be surprised at how quickly we start to pick up on the fact that, oh, this is an AI-generated thing. And then, of course, you know, it opens up the question of an arms race of, you know, constantly improving technologies that try to get that more and more human-like or surpass human capabilities. But we're, we're not at that point right now. Yeah, totally. I think that's a a really important thing to bring it back to when we're having these discussions is, you know, not to jump the gun and be like, oh, no, this is like the next phase of human evolution, but really to look at this in the context that it developed from, which is really like a hype cycle of the tech industry. Um pushing uh, investment in particular areas after, you know, the crypto crash and um, the, the fizzle out of Web3 and really just taking it as it comes and, and seeing what happens next. So, Jathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much, Priya. Always a joy. All right. And that was uh, Jathan Sadowski, Senior Research Fellow in the Emerging Re- Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, who spoke with us about generative AI platforms, including the much-hyped DALI and ChatGPT, and unpacked what they do, how they work, and contextualize some of their development within the political economy of the modern tech industry. And alongside Jathan's academic research, he also co-hosts This Machine Kills, which is a podcast about technology and political economy. And you can find that where all good podcasts are hosted. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And that was Senior Research Fellow at um, Monash University, Jaden Sardusky, uh, having a conversation with Priya on Thursday breakfast last week. Jaden also co-hosts the Mich- This Machine Kills, a podcast about technology technology and political economy, which can be found on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Yeah. All right. So now I'll be passing to Claudia. Thanks, Grace. 
We're going to go into our next segment now, but before we do that, I'd just like to mention uh, for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this segment does contain sensitive content and may refer to the names of people who have died. If this may be distressing for you, you might wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes. Our next guest is a woman who describes herself as a barrister, historian, environmentalist, active community member in regional Victoria and an author. She currently is a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, Chair of Victoria's Environment Protection Authority and a steering group member of the Women's Climate Congress, as well as a number of other roles. But she's not here to talk to us about any of that. Our guest, Kate Orty, has just written a book called O'Leary of the Underworld, the untold story of the Forest River Massacre, which reveals the shameful story of the murder of at least 20 Aboriginal people in the Kimberley region of Western Australia in 1926. She joins us now to tell us about the book, why she wrote it, and the important messages it holds for Australians today. Good morning, Kate. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Now, I've been a little bit misleading in my introduction because I left out your background in the area of Aboriginal justice. Can you tell us about the work you've done in this area and the influences that have brought you to explore the Forest River massacre? Yeah, okay. I'm getting a bit of echo, but I think you're probably not. My background is that as a magistrate, I was the inaugural magistrate when we set up the Koori Courts here in Shepparton, and that was in the early 2000s. That followed on from some work that I'd done with uh, Pat Dodson and others in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and also working in my very first job as a lawyer with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And after I was involved in um, setting up the Koori Court with Aboriginal people up here in northeast Victoria, because I live and work on Tungurong country now, I went to Kalgoorlie where we set up a community court as well, again in consultation with Aboriginal people. And Kalgoorlie and Norseman ran those courts for a couple of years until I came back here and uh, the court was in fact discontinued under the, um, under the authority of the then Western Australia Western Australian Attorney General Christian Porter, as I recall it, and writing this book came from a number of um, a number of those areas in my background. I quite early on in my arts honours arts honours degree first looked at the Royal Commission into the 1926 killings, and I'd then sort of gone on to work and do the things that we all do, which is get on with um, trying to make a living and. and look after yourself and I came back to it after I'd uh, finished in the Royal Commission with Pat and then I also came back to it in COVID actually so while we were locked down in COVID I went back to my computer and um, thought it was time that I sat down and put this actually into um, into a form where it might be published and Black Ink was good enough to take it on for me. The title of the book, O'Leary of the Underworld, The Untold Story of the Forest River Massacre, suggests to the reader there are two versions of the event, the one that made it into the original record and the untold one that you share. Can you tell us what the untold story is and how does it deviate from the accounts of others? There's two versions at least. There's the Royal Commission 
and there's um, my unpacking of O'Leary. I chose O'Leary because he's, in my view, a pivotal character in what happened in 1926. He had come back from the war, gone up to the Kimberley and was part of what was described as um, the soldier settlement pastoral uh, involvement and he had a past he had had a pastoral station a small a small holding he um, he gave evidence in the royal commission and there was some question then about whether in fact O'Leary was who he said he was and in unpacking him of course you discover that he isn't so there's a whole lot of secrets and lies about O'Leary and that's the untold story that I'm endeavoring to tell in this book there has been another book written about the 1926 events and the 1927 royal commission by Neville Green and that's some um, years old now, but Neville didn't deal with O'Leary. O'Leary's fascinating character because not only was he in the Kimberley in 1926 engaged in misconduct, but after it all finished, he went off to Tennant Creek, where he went back to what, in fact, would have been his major way of making a living, which was mining. And he uh, hooked up with uh, people around Tennant Creek and around the Granites and around Coniston. And it's very evident that he was an associate of Constable Murray, who was one of the people involved in the 1928 Coniston massacres. So he's a person who's gone from one place to the other in circumstances that really aren't very clear. He's a person who we really don't know very much about until we <coughs> say, all right, who is he? And in fact, pardon my voice, O'Leary's family story comes to us through his war service records where one of his sisters, Vera, was looking for him and gave the family name as Coffee. So that's how you discover who O'Leary was. His family story is fascinating. He came from Victoria, actually, and his uh, grandfather was a person who was transported to Tasmania for armed robbery. His father was a police officer around Bendigo who got himself into trouble for gambling, drinking and people alleged that he was engaged in selective prosecutions. His mother was a woman who, when uh, her husband died, went to Kalgoorlie taking O'Leary and uh, some of her children with her at that time. And she was a person who was a publican and was a bit of a card sharp and was probably a very strong woman and uh, a little bit on the um, offside of what we might have described as um, legitimate. So O'Leary's got an extraordinarily interesting background and he brings all of that to the Royal Commission. He's one of six police and civilians who gave evidence in the 1927 Royal Commission and the Royal Commissioner said of him and the others, well, certainly of O'Leary, that he obviously lied to him. He said of the others that they lied as well. And that all boils, that boils the whole story down to what actually did happen in 1926. And just for clarity for your listeners, the very first police report about what happened in 1926 came from a police inspector called Douglas, who was later to become the commissioner of police. So we're not talking about somebody who was an amateur. And in fact, in relation to Douglas's very first report, he was confident when he was taken around some of the sites where the police had been, that four men were killed, that then three women were killed, and then nine other people were killed. And they're the sites that that police inspector was taken to, and he reported that back at the very earliest opportunity in his very earliest um, police report. The other four people who are... Um, who were killed, were actually killed north of the Forest River Mission. And that particular site was not visited by Police Inspector Douglas, but it was visited rather unusually for the Times by the Royal Commissioner, who was uh, confident, and that's probably not the right word, but was uh, confident that four people were killed at that particular site. 
And O'Leary was one of the people who gave evidence about all of these events except for that last four, those last four people being killed. And it struck me when I started to unpack his story that he was a very um, challenging, confident braggart, um, a liar, as the Commissioner said he was, and that his subsequent history only made that more, made that more obvious. And that's the untold story that I'm telling in this in this book. Thank you. <clears throat> Much of your book is spent forensically examining the statements made in the Royal Commission. Why was it so important for you to set the record straight? And were there any objections to you doing this work in the community? I didn't take objections from the community about the work, but I've made sure the book's gone back to the community up there and I asked Pat Dodson to read it after I finished it. It was important to do this book not just to tell the story about what I say occurred in 1926-27 and subsequently, but because I think that we won't be able to launch what we need to do about treaty and other things unless we're really clear about truth-telling in our country. And I live, as I said, in northeast Victoria. This is a part of the world where we know that at least one um, incident involving Aboriginal people occurred subsequent to some whites being killed by Aboriginal people. It's a place where the very earliest occupation by whites with large flocks of sheep came through this country over to the over to the west, and over to the west around um, around the Campaspe and around um, that area, it's clear that there were a number of Aboriginal people killed by the squatters who came through with their flocks. So that goes back a long way, but it's a story that's been hidden. And it's time that it wasn't. And to unhide it, we have to do the work to unpack what is essentially a record that's very difficult to um, to strip back. And O'Leary's was more difficult than most simply because of the fact that he had secreted who he was and that meant that you didn't know who you were really dealing with. And that's notwithstanding that there was a, a 1927 Royal Commission into the 1926 matters. So my point, I suppose, is that here in the North East, we just recently had a Yes picnic. We called it a Yes picnic because we wanted to support the voice um, in the Constitution. And we got something like 200 to 300 people along to that picnic here in Euroa. And we did that because we think that a mature country understands its history recognises its history, knows that truth-telling is going to be difficult and troubling and that um, books like mine are part of part of the journey. And that's the journey we've got to take to get to where we need to go with treaty and truth-telling. So it's part of a broader story and it's not just about what, um, and I use that word just advisedly, but it's not just about what happened in 1926 and 27. You asked me too about unpacking or examining the actual testimony itself and I've done that because I think that sometimes we take for granted that the record itself is, um, uh, the obvious record itself is what we might describe as the truth. Now the Royal Commissioner found that 11 people had been, he was confident 11 people had been killed. Police Inspector Douglas makes it those those people and another nine. And that particular evidence about those nine was not something that was extruded in the Royal Commission text as I think it should have been. 
And I think that there are things we should do about unpacking things like the text of a royal commission, for instance, or a trial or any of these ways in which Aboriginal people come to be exposed to justice. And also non-Aboriginal people, I might add. And we need to unpack those to actually come to what I would describe as a greater understanding of what really happened. And if you go and have a look at the Max Stewart matter in South Australia some time ago, you'll find exactly that happening. There was a case where a man was found guilty of a murder. There was a royal commission. He was a person who was sentenced to death and ultimately that sentence was not carried out after an extensive examination of what was said to be his confession. And there have been subsequent work by a wonderful scholar called Diana Eads who's looked at what she calls gratuitous concurrence when Aboriginal people are exposed to that sort of um, examination, cross-examination about their activities. And I think that when we start to look carefully at the texts of some of these um, trials, royal commissions, we find that they aren't quite as clear-cut as one might think they were. And we need to do that. And sometimes lawyers are useful for some things and that might be one of the things that we're useful for. (laughs) And I guess uh, in addition to the text is the context when you sort of think about the times in 1927 and the issues that we continue to have in the criminal justice system. Yeah, there's a lot of context and there's a lot of uh, thought that needs to go into the way in which evidence is presented because it, it might not tell the whole story. It might only tell the story that was given in court on that day and if people aren't there or absent for whatever reason and their their story isn't included, then it's not the whole story at all. Yeah, and look, this, this, go, this does, of course, um, unfold in 1927, But it's very clear that Aboriginal people who did give evidence uh, found it uh, somewhat of a struggle. Aboriginal people who gave evidence about what occurred, some assaulted statements that they'd given to the police investigation. In their statements, they had been um, uh, critical of the police um, behaviour, the police patrol. In their evidence, that was not the case. In fact, the Royal Commissioner in one of the... um, During the evidence of one of these Aboriginal people cleared the court in Wyndham told everybody who was not part of the process to get out of the court at a time when one of these Aboriginal witnesses was in fact somersaulting his earlier police statement. And it's very clear to me as a person who's been in many courts over many years that that sort of thing is unusual. It only happens when there's some suggestion that there's intimidation taking place. And the Commissioner didn't say... Uh, X, Y and Z, you are intimidating this witness, which is a bit unfortunate, but that's clearly why the court was cleared at that time. There's an Aboriginal woman who gave evidence who said not only did she... Well, who gave evidence, not only did she somersault her statement, she actually denied even making a statement in the, in the Royal Commission. And it was just extraordinarily perplexing. Mm. When... Aboriginal trackers went missing. They were the ones who were critically important for telling the story of what actually happened out there on the Forest River um, area. And one of them was a man called Suleiman. He um, he just went missing and the police were sent out to find them, to bring them back, he, he and two others, to bring them back for the Royal Commission to hear their evidence. And lo and behold, we discovered that the person who was sent out to find them was in fact Constable St Jack, who was one of the people who was accused of being a perpetrator mm. of the mass killings. Yeah. And that 
you know, you, 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 I hear in your voice, you go, oh, God, that, that just is astonishing. But mm. that's what happened. And, I mean, who's surprised that Solomon did not come back and give evidence and couldn't be found? And who would want to know mm. how much of a search was actually made to bring him back? And he's a critically important witness because he was the tracker who took police inspector Douglas around the sites where Douglas was convinced four people three people and nine people were killed. So Suleiman was important. He was, mm. he was a witness that if, if you lost him in your trial, you'd be thinking to yourself, well, that's more or less the end of it. I mean, he was an important witness and it was um, critically important that the commissioner hear from him. Mm. But it, I, what you see throughout, the, throughout the, the transcripts of the Royal Commission is just exactly that issue I earlier r- referred to, which is Aboriginal people having a struggle with the process for various reasons, not the least of which may well have been intimidation, given that the court was cleared on at least one occasion. The other thing about this is that when you start to unpack it from the point of view of a lawyer, you pick up on things that people might not necessarily know if they don't know the protocols of running a case, for instance. Uh, Nan, who was the police barrister, made his submissions, it was not beyond the realm of possibility that Aboriginal people just threw some bones in the creek. Now, if he was to say that in his submission, he should have put it to witnesses, which he didn't. That's just a problem. And there are a couple of other threats that O'Leary made to Gribble, which um, a subsequent author who denies that the royal that the massacres happened, um, O'Leary made threats to Gribble, and the denialist says that uh, those threats were never made, and Gribble, the missionary, made the whole story up. Uh, if you're making those sorts of assertions, you know, 100 years later about how the case should... Op- you really should be examining what it means to do that. Exactly. Kate, um, we're getting a bit of interference on the line at this end. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, We've just scratched the surface of this book and the layers of um, conspiracy and silence and cover-up. It's uh, such an important work and you're the person that did that work and, you know, we talk about truth-telling. It's very time-consuming and it requires a lot of patience to stay with the stories and link and find the people that are relevant to fill the gaps and to share the bits that they that weren't told so thank you for doing your part and uh, i recommend listeners to o'leary of the underworld the untold story of the forest river massacre published by black ink that was kate orty speaking with us And if this segment has been distressing for you, uh, please reach out for support, Lifeline 131114, or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders can call 13 Yarn 139276. We'll be back in a moment speaking with Emily Sexton from Arts House about the dance festival Frame. Interesting. Um, but before we head to that, we'll be playing a song for you. This is called Always Was by Flute. Go away, cuz. That's by the boy ringing now. Answer it, Doc. Quick answer. You are about to receive a phone call from a prisoner at the Casuarina Prison. Your conversation will be recorded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Don't think now that I'm locked up that you're going to silence me. People 
got opinions but they don't want to help So they just put it on their statuses and think of themselves Well I'ma let my heart pour and I tell it how it is I'ma do it for my people, I'ma do it for my kids I don't want them going through the same thing that I did I just want their future to be brighter and be a freedom fighter And all my people to be equal when we light the fire And sit around black and white and not be divided United we stand divided, we fall until black lives matter Don't you ever say yo, 400 deaths in custody and not one conviction they try to say sorry, but that shit's not gonna fix it The thing that needs fixing is this fucked up system We're jumping up and down, but there's no one there to listen If no one's gonna listen, then we'll take it to the streets Always was, always will be Always was, always will be Always was, always will be Always was, always will be, always was, always will be. Aboriginal Oppressed to the fullest extent This suggests the most cruelest intent If you choose to express or vent You're met with hostility A bullet to the head And that's death Cease to exist Left deep in the ditch This is evil as shit But people are sick Of these evil as pricks Playing politics with our life We are the kings and the queens of our country You can't tell me that my mama didn't love me They still stealing kids DCP man it's real as shit They're so fucking conditioned that it feels legit They take away tradition and they fill it with religious shit That tricks the kids to think it's legit I'm just saying they got all our people praying While our ancestors laying in a ditch huh. Always was, always will be Always was, always will be Always was, always will be That was Always Was by Flint. Yeah, and now I'll be passing to Claudia. Thanks, Grace. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with myself, Claudia, and Grace here in the studio. Our next guest is Emily Sexton, co-artistic director of Arts House, a contemporary performance space in the city of Melbourne. Throughout March, Arts House is presenting a dance festival called Frame, which promises to expand the notions of relation, intimacy, identity, spirituality and vulnerability. One reviewer describes it as a heady mix of energy and ideas. We welcome Emily to tell us more about the festival program and what makes it different to other dance offerings. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Claudia. Nice to hear from you, Grace. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Congratulations on launching this event. Can you tell Thank us you. how the idea for this dance festival arose and what you're trying to do that is different to other things? Yeah, well, um, it comes off the back of 10 years of a festival called Dance Massive that people might have heard of. And then we took the um, pandemic time to really... Uh, 
chat with about 500 people across the dance community from all parts of uh, Melbourne and Victoria um, to sort of think about what do we need now um, and what does dance need now and what does the community need now. And what we arrived at was a new festival called Frame. Um, Arts House is one player um, within the festival. We actually work with 16 other partners um, across the state, and that includes uh, Banjul Place, the Arts Centre, um, Chunky Move, the Australian Ballet, um, Darabin Arts Centre, uh, heaps of people, Lucy Gerenink, um, all sorts of different kinds of people who contribute to dance in, here, in this sort of cap- uh, capital, I guess. And uh, it's been really exciting. It's a much more, it's a collectively organised festival. And I think a lot of people uh, these days, a contemporary way of thinking about culture is that everyone's part of the conversation. And I think the festival reflects that. Um, and it's been stimulating to share space with other people, hear from all sorts of different views, not kind of rely on the singular artistic vision of one kind of tastemaker, I guess, but actually make it much more porous and much more, I guess, um, yeah, lots of opportunities for people to be dancing as much as to present, you know, extremely um, high-end, ex- exceptional dance. Yes, and um, the festival is not only performances, there's also workshops and panel discussions and so forth as well. That's right, Um, yeah. And cultural diversity, as you said, is a a big part of it, not just in terms of the performers and their backgrounds, but also the particular dance forms presented. Can you Mm. give our listeners a sense of the different cultural styles that are explored in the program? And also how those boundaries of old and new are tested in the performances. Well, tonight at Arts House, we are opening a new show um, by Jackie Shepherd um, called The Honouring. Jackie is um, an exceptional um, uh, dance maker, but also puppeteer um, and, and a First Nations woman. And she's built on a work that... Um, actually was uh, first presented as part of Yurimboy a couple of years ago. So this is an expanded um, uh, reflection on the, on that work. It, it deals with quite heavy themes of, um, you know, grief and, and how we mourn that, you know, the I guess the elders that we've lost in the community and the people from the LGBTQI community. So... Yeah, there's that kind of perspective. And then on Friday, I'm going to Northcote Town Hall to see Amelia Jean O'Leary's show um, called A Certain Bumble. Um, and that is another um, First Nations woman's perspective on her culture and on dance and on identity. So it's both of them are emerging artists in different ways, and it's really exciting to have them in dialogue in the same week. Um then we, oh, we've got so much coming up. You know, next week we've got um, Restless... Um, Yes, <laughs> uh, Resilience Dance Theatre coming over from Adelaide. They're an inclusive dance company, um, which means that they have people with disabilities and non-disabled artists. Um, they are presenting a beautiful work at Arts House called Exposed. Um, we also have um, Yumi Umamari, who's an exceptional elder um, of Bhutto dance practice. Her work is absolutely wild. It's super fun. You might have... Um, seen it as part of Moira Finnecane's um, shows around and about. 
She'll be presenting her new work at Dance House next week. We also have people coming from Aotearoa over the ditch. Um, to And um, those artists, Ushkan and Jara, are more of the, I guess, hip-hop and whacking kind of world, so more street dance. And they're doing a lab with local artists, and then they're also hosting a party. There's another party called um, Aliens of Extraordinary Ability that's happening at Temperance Hall that's been curated by Luke George, and that's uh, more kind of performance art and queer kind kind of, I guess, dance and, and kind of party vibe. So it really traverses quite a eclectic mix um, of what is happening in Melbourne. Um, but that makes me excited, you know. I think that's uh, the best representation of what this scene can offer. And you mentioned inclusivity. There's also three public dance works being created throughout the festival. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what is a public dance work and <laughs> how will these uh, be created? Well, I actually, so uh, the work is called Us and All of This. Uh, it's by a Queensland artist called Liesl Think. I actually saw the first performance um, of it on Saturday at uh, the at Arts Centre Melbourne. It's just a really moving um, celebration of different people from different walks of life um, with a hundred different performers. And they, um, yeah, it's a choreography that happens in public space. There's really not that much to it, but it is so wonderful to see people moving thoughtfully in relation to the architecture, in relation to what happens in, in, I guess, the public realm. Um, So that's great. And you can see it at uh, Bunjil Place this weekend and then also in uh, Geelong the following weekend. And as an artistic director, I was thinking about you must have worked with many different artists and organisations over the years. I wonder Mm -hmm. what you've observed in relation to the creative teams and artists that are involved in in this festival, given the breadth and the the depth of um, talent and the different experiences and methodologies that they're using I you know yeah. I just was interested to know whether That's there is particular <laughs> things that um that you've yeah. noticed and their attitudes and approaches to the the subjects and the other artists uh that's a great question um Look, this has been a different way of working for everyone. It's been a lot of um I guess seeding control um you know the way uh, most kind of organizations operate in the arts, oh, God, I'm about to say something bad, but, like, they've modelled on, you know, pretty straightforward companies. Rather, you know, you have More a boss structured. and you have... Yeah, right? The structures are the same as the way you'd structure McDonald's. Um, this festival is not like that, you know? It, it is... Um, you know, you can deride it as being run by a committee of management, and I think that's really unimaginative. Actually, what's happened is that... Um, 20 different artists have been asked to think about what the programming is that, you know, all these other organisations have put together and then find gaps. And it's a huge act of faith and also it's a huge act of believing that artists are smart <laughs> and that they can offer something that we that we as kind of curators might not have seen. Um, so it is, to me, a very inspiring community-based way of celebrating um, an art form but also celebrating each other in in a kind of city that's been through something quite significant over the last few years, especially dance. You know, I was talking to a dancer the other day who'd done her whole degree 
in her bedroom, and I just that stuff breaks my heart. I just think that's mm. so weird and hard for her. And she's doing really well now. But I just, for me, the festival's been a, a wonderful um, piece of collaboration, really, in the in the truest sense of the word. Like we, each person has had to give up their vision in to make space for someone else's vision and I think that's cool I think that's really contemporary and mm. um, that's what you know that's what how kind of the more exciting biennales in you know Documenta or the Sharjah Biennale like these these kinds of really forward focused festivals make space for lots of different opinions it's a it's a pretty um, anti-colonial way of working and I think yeah I find that inspiring and uh, we've got to wrap up in a moment, but um, I was sort of looking at the program and thinking about the different themes and ideas that are being challenged th through the works and the workshops. Um, mm. There's a whole range of uh, ideas being tested, the relationship between the human body and technology. Um, mm. You mentioned grief, healing, queerness, mm. being an outsider. I just wondered how you uh, invite audiences who might not be used to such experimental or challenging um, material, might not be what they've been used to as a dance mm. um, follower if they've been used to going to a more conservative programming. Mm. What do you say to audiences who might be nervous of stepping out of their comfort zone? Um. We often get asked this question about dance, and I would say, um, first of all, you, like there's no getting it. <laughs> there's no secret code. It um, you can experience and enjoy dance just for the the view, like just for watching it um, and enjoying what you know the exceptional things people can do with their bodies. Um, it can be a, a you know you can switch your brain off entirely. Um, and that's totally fine. There's just no right way of um, looking at these things. So, yes, often there's lots of ideas, like you mentioned, but actually sometimes it's also just about allowing yourself to sit and watch something and be moved um, and, and appreciate, yeah, the, the craft or appreciate, um, the yeah, the, what this person has put together, the way the lighting works, the jokes that are there, Um yeah, it, it doesn't have to be so... I find often it is not so complicated, actually. It's it's really just the pleasure of, of seeing people move and, and how beautiful and moving that can be. Well, on that note, um, how can our listeners find out more about the event program and buy tickets to those events that are ticketed? Yeah. There's, there's many free events, but um, I think you still need to register for some of those. Some of them, yeah. So you framebiennial.com.au. Um, you can buy a frame pass, which gives you discounts to the ticketed shows. Um, or you could come to arthouse.com.au as well and, and buy tickets um, for our venue um, but at, at that website. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Claudia. That was Emily Sexton, co-artistic director of Arts House, which is presenting Frame, a biennial of dance on in Nam until the end of March. So if you're looking for something to do over the next two weeks, um, check that one out. Mm. And that brings us to the end of our show. Yeah, it's been quite a full show today as usual. Um, very busy and packed. We couldn't really take much of a break, but 
you know. Oh, good. Got a few <laughs> songs in this time, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, yeah. this is great that we at least got to bring in three songs. Um, really, really nice songs as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting about the dance community. I, I personally really enjoy dancing, so mm. I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very diverse program. And yeah, I think it's got a lot of um, interesting staging as well with lights and special effects. And I mean, they're all different, but there's lots, um, lots there. Yeah, and lots of it is free as well. Yeah, and then the, the also the whole thing with um, the your your chat with um, Kate Orty about the book that mm. was also very interesting, and um, it I get I guess when it comes to this I think it's always a quite a sensitive topic to be talked about, but I think it's very important that we you know mention these kind of things for yeah for our listeners to learn about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, speaking of things to learn about, uh, just another plug for the Nuclear Free Collective um, holding their action meeting at Friends of the Earth this evening between 6 and 8pm at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. So if any listeners are interested in going along and contributing some time and hearing about their, their work and the trip they're going to be taking next week, to visit the proposed National Nuclear Waste Dump Site in South Australia. Head off to Collingwood tonight. Mm, nice. Um, yeah, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today. Um, I hope you enjoy what you listened and uh, always come into Wednesday breakfast every Wednesday from 7 to 8.30. Thank you very much and thank you to all our guests that joined us this morning, Emily Sexton and Kate Orty. Yeah. Right. So stay on for Stick Together. Stay tuned. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.